Hey, what's up, Cub fans? Welcome to episode 54 of Locked on Cubs. I'm your host, Ryan Davis of Sporting News and CubsInsider.com. And you are listening to a victory episode of Locked on Cubs. The Cubs actually played a game on Thursday. I know. Hold your shock. They beat the St. Louis Cardinals, and I'll go through that in just a minute. And then uh, second segment, I'll bring on a guest that will talk about uh, Ian Happ and Albert Armorna and the playing time split. We'll also talk a little about Javier Baez. And then final segment, as always, I'll run down the NL Central from today. So the Cubs beat the St. Louis Cardinals behind a strong start from John Lester, finishing out Thursday's game by a score of 8-5. to five. Lester tossed six innings, allowing just one run, which was unearned. Eddie Butler walked some guys and had some bad luck in the seventh, leading to a four spot for St. Louis. But Carl Edwards Jr. and Brandon Morrow closed things out in the final two innings. Jason Hayward was two for four with a big home run, while the Cubs pretty much just first to thirded the Cardinals to death in the early innings. Javier Baez was two for five in the game, and I'll be talking about a bit more about him in just a minute, as I mentioned. So the Cubs moved to 8-8 eight and eight while the Cardinals dropped to 10-8. and eight. Uh, Friday's game will be in Colorado against the Rockies, kicking off a three-game set with Kyle Hendricks on the mound against John Gray. Game time is 7.40 p.m. Central Time and will be broadcast on WGN. But if you listen to yesterday's, yesterday's episode, I mentioned that the next two days in Colorado, it's uh, supposed to be a little bit rainy, a little bit cold. So we'll see on Friday and Saturday night's game. I don't know what the what – the, prognosis is whether they're going to get those games in or not but the good news is on Sunday it looks like it's going to be clear and maybe even kind of warm in Colorado so I'm sure Cubs players will be uh, absolutely thrilled to be seeing upper 60s uh, for for a game although you know if you were in uh, like August early August and you told you know players it was going to be 67 they'd probably be wearing long sleeves and and stuff like that they'd be preparing for a chilly day but uh 67 68 degrees uh that that sounds absolutely wonderful i'm guessing so that's what the outlook is for now um but looking back on today's game just a a really good victory the cubs broke out the bats they got to luke weaver early i had just been talking about how luke weaver was one of the cardinals players that i'm most impressed with and and really like the cubs just were not fooled by him at all, and they jumped on him, got him out of the game quick. They got him in the Cardinals' bullpen, and the rest of the game just, uh, you know, outside of that seventh inning with Eddie Butler where, you know, there was some walks, there was some bad luck, there was some weak contact for hits. Um, you know, outside of that, it really wasn't, uh, you know, much of a nail-biter. This one was kind of in the bag early, which was nice. It was nice to have a game after all those off days and that loss that was sandwiched in between, I'm sure for Cubs fans, it was nice to sit at home and just relax and kind of watch the Cubs beat up on the Cardinals and, and know that today was a victory without having to get all stressed out. So uh, again, Friday's game, 740 on WGN. That'll be Kyle Hendricks against John Gray of the Colorado Rockies. Joining me now for this segment of Locked on Cubs is our own Locked on Cubs writer. And as of earlier this week, one of my new best friends, Kelly Wallace. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, Kelly uh, is one of the people, one of the few who braved the conditions to come out to the Nisai Lounge on Monday, was it? Monday night? when the yes. or two, Yeah, Monday when the Cubs were supposed to play. And then they didn't. But she One of the out, many not games this year, yes. Yeah, she came out to... 
uh, have a drink with myself and Luis from Bleacher Nation. And uh, we had a good time. It was it was a good time discussing baseball and life. And uh, Kelly is one of my favorite people to have on the site. I guess I'm not supposed to say that uh, because no. showing no, okay. favoritism. Showing favoritism. <laughs> you're you're all my favorite equally. <laughs> okay, but there were also very good tacos. I do feel the need to add that on yeah. Monday night. I was very impressed with the skills of finding a great taco place super late. Yeah, no, the trick was I suggested a different place. And, <laughs> and then Luis drove us to that different place. And when we parked the car, I looked outside my window and said, ooh, tacos. <laughs> you know what? Much like the Cubs season so far, things did not go exactly as we planned. No, but it always works out in the end. So I guess that's a great <laughs> metaphor for life. And hopefully for this baseball season. Right. Well, getting right into the baseball then, uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was Ian Happ and Albert Almora. It's not a perfect split because you have, what, like five outfielders sharing time for three spots. Right. And um, so not everybody plays against every pitcher, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Schwarber sits a lot against lefties. Um, ben Zobrist moves a little bit between second and the outfield, and he's been out a little bit more recently with the injured back. And then Jason Hayward struggles a whole lot against everybody, primarily left-handed pitchers, but he still plays against everyone anyway, uh, much to uh, many a Cub fan's dismay. But then you have Almora and Hap, who primarily play center field. Each of them moves to the corner a little bit, but primarily those are your two center fielders for the season. Mm-hmm. And Hap was the guy who slugged in spring training, and everyone thought, okay, this is our leadoff guy. And since the start of the season, he has been absolutely dreadful. Whereas Albert Almora, he's kind of shown up a little bit more lately. So uh, I want, I've got some stats I wrote down, but we can get into that in a little bit. What are your thoughts on Ian Hap and Albert Almora as they stand right now? Ian Happ so far has been a really good example of why spring training does not really mean much. Um, I really, really liked Ian in spring training. I think everyone liked Ian in spring training. It would be really hard not to have liked Ian in spring training. Uh, but I don't, I'm not impressed. The strikeout rate is obviously, I'm sure, one of the stats you're going to come out with, but it's not great. Um, and I know that with Ian. <laughs> I want to like him uh, as a fielder, but I still don't. Um, I think Joe brought this up, but his roots in center field are not great right now. He's not really finding the most direct path to the ball. And we can talk all day about him at the plate and all the struggles he's been having at the plate. And the fact remains, though, that on defense, he's just simply an inferior center fielder to Albert Almora. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's something that I've – talked about in the past is that he's a below average outfielder. I do think he has improved some, uh, at least uh, he lost a little bit of weight in the off season. I think he's a little bit quicker out there. Not, a, not probably noticeably quicker, but um, he has improved a little bit. And this is the main thing I have with him uh, going into spring training last season. I talked to uh, Jaron Madison, uh, who is one of the higher ups in the uh, front office in regards to player development. And he talked about Ian Happ was basically a, his mentality was I am a second baseman only when he arrived with the Cubs and they had to really sell him on learning the outfield and, and taking on that position. So this is a guy who unlike Albert Almora jr. Hasn't had a ton of time out there. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like there is room for growth. Uh, it's just that at this point, 
in his growth, he's nowhere near where Almora is as a fielder. And the hitting has to carry him. And to this point, Almora has been, uh, you know, at least this season, uh, a superior hitter too. Uh, one of the stats I wanted to give you, uh, Almora since last June 13th. So June 13th last season, regular season through today uh, with the Cubs, he has had 230 plate appearances with a slash line of 310 slash 346 on base slash 484 slugging with a 116 WRC plus. That's th- those are really good numbers. That's yeah. really good hitting. How is that? And and people will say, well, a lot of that's coming against left-handed pitchers, and that's true. But during that same time period, uh, slash line against right-handed pitching is 291 batting. 308 on base, so not great on base, but 472 slugging, a 99 WRC plus. You know that's basically league average. But if he's crushing lefties, you know you're definitely going to live with that. So how is he not taking more of the time away from Ian Happ? I guess. Well, and I think that's kind of the common wisdom with Albert that everyone throws out there, right? Is that he crushes lefties and that he struggles on righties. Um, to me, I think Albert Almora actually benefits a lot from major league at bats against righties. I think he's in a position to make steps forward there, but he does need the major league playing time against right-handed pitchers. I'm not on the bus right now that some people are on of send Ian back to Iowa, but I will say that I think Iowa is more productive for Ian learning how to play center field than I think it would do. It would do, obviously, I don't think anything for Albert Amora at this point. No. So to me, to justify playing Albert less than Ian, I, I don't see a reason for that right now. I agree with you. I, I think Almora has to be, uh, at least for right now, the guy that you're putting out there. I don't want to say like nine times out of 10, but if the two of them are splitting playing time, I'm probably leaning more towards like Almora, like six or seven out of 10 and Hap four or three out of 10. I, I don't know. I guess I don't want to dump that much uh, bench time on Hap. It, it's just a hard thing to split. Obviously, he's not going to come out of his slump if he's sitting on the bench all the time. But you know, at, at this point, Almora is the superior player and that's the guy you've got to have out there. And what what do you think about how far how much Ben Zobris fits in? Because obviously right now he has his back thing that has sidelined him today, but they did say he might have been available today as a replacement or a pinch hit. So it doesn't sound like it's that serious. And he has been hot. So I yeah. mean, I'm a big advocate right now for playing Zoe a little bit more up top of the lineup. Yeah, no, I like him up there just because he's uh, experienced. Uh, he has a, a great batting eye. He makes contact. Uh, he's a good hitter overall. Uh, he's a guy who can get on base and play your corner outfield spots, uh, at least, you know, productively, we'll say. Um, but that's not uh, – he is part of that rotation of part-time players. And at, at this point, it still is a pretty short list for me of guys in this regular lineup who I see as the ones you don't take out of the lineup unless it's, uh, like, really needing a day off or uh, a nagging injury, like uh, your Rizzo, your Chris Bryant, mm-hmm. Wilson Contreras, unless you've got, you know, just that kind of day off for the catcher. Those are your quote-unquote everyday players. Other than that, I'm not putting Schwarber out there against lefties. Uh, I personally would not put Schwarber out, uh, put uh, Hayward out there against lefties. Uh, I would not be putting, 
uh, Ian Happ out there every day. Albert Amorai would be giving a little bit of time off uh, against righties to get other guys in there to get Ben Zobrist in there. So um, it, another guy that I probably wouldn't start every single day is Addison Russell. Um, I think Javier Baez can scoot over to shortstop pretty admirably, and we'll talk a little bit more about Baez in a little bit, but um, Baez might be that last guy that I say he is an everyday player at this point, and that's it. I don't think you can justify, especially given the current moment that Javi is having, having him out of the lineup right now, mm -hmm. whether it's at shortstop or whether it's at second base, one or the other, I don't think you can justify sitting him right now. Right. Well, let's go ahead and go on. A, that's a natural transition we'll take into Javier Baez. <laughs> He's just absolutely destroying the ball. This is a guy that I think a lot of people forgot because of how long he's been in the big leagues, really. A lot of people forgot his prospect status and what so many people thought about him as a prospect and his offensive ability and what his ceiling could be. I think once he made it to the big leagues and he had that 2014 season where the Cubs were pretty much saying, go on up to the big leagues and just bat second every day and strike out, strike yourself out silly and show yourself exactly how far away you are from being a real big league hitter. I think ever since that moment, Cubs fans as a whole have kind of just been like, well, he's an elite defensive player. Whatever he gives you offensively is just fine. And so in that way, they've kind of written off Baez. And now this season, surprisingly, he's just seemed to have put it together and is, at least to this point, giving you an extended look of this is what Baez would look like if he learned how to control the strike zone, cut down on his swing with two strikes to make more contact, and just really control his at-bats. And it's really impressive. It is, I am just floored that he's been able to do this for as long as he has. I was a huge advocate for not trading Javi when the offseason usual chatter of who potentially is a trade piece, because I, I very much believe that he has an incredibly high ceiling. And um, so far this year, this is really what I was hoping to see from him. Um, in spring training, he was still having a little bit more trouble laying off the sliders, uh, which he's doing great with now. He's not swinging wildly at those down and away sliders, which is like, the biggest problem that he had last year. I think part of it is his approach. I mean, and he said this as much too, but that I remember he did a, p a piece on NBC Chicago where he talked about how he learned how to tag and how one of the things that he did was that he sort of slowed the ball down in his mind and then traced the angle at which the ball and the runner were most likely to intersect so he could find the right place to drop the tag before he actually has the ball in his glove. That is what he keeps saying he's trying to do with his hitting now that to see the ball better, to keep his mind clear, to focus on visualizing the angles, and that the numbers, the velocity, and the launch angle, and all that kind of just messes him up and confuses him. If that is the trick for him, if Chili Davis is the trick for him, if that approach is what makes it click in his mind, which strikes, which balls he needs to lay off of, I'm thrilled. To me, it seems like the way he's sort of switched his mentality and how he's looking at his at-bats overall, it, I agree that it seems night and day from what it was. Yeah, I mean, and different things work for different guys. Chris Bryant is a great example of a guy who looks at that launch angle stuff and and digs into all the uh, advanced stuff and really works with his dad, Mike, on uh, hitting to revamp himself every winter and 
so far it's worked to the point where every year Chris Bryant shows back up as a better hitter than he was before. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very interested to see just how good he can get at hitting baseballs considering he won an MVP in 2016. So um, Baez, I guess, is on the opposite end where you know, if that stuff messes him up, do what works. You know, Madden said today, I think, and I've heard him say it in the past, where he's comped Baez with basically Manny Ramirez in his prime playing second base. I mean, <laughs> just just imagine that in your mind. This is a guy that I think, man. Well, I mean, I, I think keep... about Manny Ramirez in his prime. I mean, like one of my favorite baseball players, for the record. Um, and I, after he made that comparison, uh, Joe did, I looked up actually what Manny was hitting in his prime. And he was batting 308. He had 26 home runs. He had 88 RBIs in his age 25 season, which is where Javi's at right now. Now, I mean, look at it so far that Javi already has 16 RBIs. Right. He already has five home runs. You could... I think most people would say 308 is past his ceiling in terms of what his batting average is likely to be this year. Likely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, you know what? If he wants to hit like he's hitting now all year and prove me wrong and bat, you know, 400, that's fine. Um, but I would say that of those stats, the 308 batting average is probably the mark of Manny's that he's least likely to touch. Well, here's some interesting stuff I brought up on my last podcast. So people who are listening, sorry to hear, you'll have to hear this again. But um, so hard contact for Baez. Uh, so far, the hard contact percentage this year is at 44%. Compare that with his career line of 31% hard contact. So when he's making contact with the ball, it is noticeably harder off the bat. And then uh, his batting average on balls in play coming into uh, today's game on Thursday uh, it was 212. So it's absurdly low. So he's making hard contact with pitches that are essentially getting hit right at fielders or the example I used uh, on the earlier podcast, uh, the ball that he hit to right field on, what was it, Tuesday? Uh, yeah, Tuesday where it got caught basically at the wall and right field against the Cardinals and the wind essentially knocks it down. Was that That's- the one that Fowler robbed him of? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the one the one where it was caught like right at the wall and Feller had to leap. That's the kind of stuff that has happened to Javi early in the season that has kept his batting average somewhat low. And I know he was batting like 191 a few days ago. And I think after today, he was two for five. So it's up to 250. He's got a decent on base, which is a little bit uh, skewed because he batted eighth for quite a while. And I think he has like 10 walks, but six of them are intentional. I was going to say, yeah. Which is funny that Javi is getting intentionally walked now, just generally, that it's happened so much to him. Well, I mean, you you have that factor of being eighth in front of the pitcher, whereas, you know, if uh, whoever, if you have, what, two outs with a runner on second and Baez coming up with John Lester behind him, he's going to get intentionally walked every time. So right. I think there was one game where he got two intentional walks and it happened a few other times. So the, the on-base looks pretty good, but that's been a factor. But the real big thing is that slugging percentage, and it's all about how hard he's hit the ball. And coming into today's game, he had 12 hits on the season and 10 of them were for extra bases. So this is a guy that... I think a lot of people had just written off as being what he is. And even though he's still young, if he is that guy from last year where he hits, let's say, 25 home runs and bats 270-something and gets on base at 300, you're just going to be thrilled with that. And I, right now, I mean, this is a guy who could probably – he looks like a guy who's going to hit 40 home runs for you. 
And I think that, I mean, I know we have to say, oh, it's a small sample size. It's a small sample size. But right. I think that just on the eye test, I mean, obviously sample size with regard to predicting stats is we don't have enough right now. But I mean, even just looking at him, I think anyone who's watching him who is familiar with having watched him last year or the year before, it looks different. He just looks different and he looks better. His stance is different. He's more upright now. I mean, the balls he's laying off of, one example I thought of actually was that um, that triple he hit uh, with the Braves game where he cleared the bases. Um, that I think is a strikeout last year, honestly, that at bat. There were two pitches during that at bat that he laid off of that I would specifically remember thinking, wow, he would have swung at those last year and this would have been over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the point that I made on the last podcast, and um, I think today may have been my real buy-in day on this, is is because of this. Madden talked in the 2016 postseason uh, when Baez was red hot through the NLDS and the first part of the NLCS about how he was reluctant to move him up in the lineup because he thought if he moved him from the bottom of the lineup towards the top, Baez might start swinging from his shoes like he's trying Mm -hmm. to prove something. And eventually he did go ice cold. And in the World Series up until the last game when he hit the home run, uh, he pretty much was an automatic out where, you know, you you could just throw it wherever you wanted and Baez would swing (laughs) at it uh, like he was trying to hit everything for a home run. And so I started thinking, okay, so today is – I put throughout the stat. In his rookie season, he batted second 52 times. Uh, he had only batted second once since then and not at all this season. And today was, uh, or, or yeah, today was second in the lineup for the Cubs. And I thought, what he does today, well, what does it bats look like? It'll again be another small sample, but it'll allow me to judge, does his mentality change moving up uh, in front of Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo? And he still looked good. He still was taking those pitches outside the zone. He was spitting at the slider in the dirt and he was swinging at good pitches if he continues doing that, this is going to be a huge breakout for him because he's that kind of talent. Well, and I think what you brought up before about how many of his hits have been extra base hits is huge when you're putting him in front of Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo. I mean, there's a huge difference from a guy who can turn a single into getting in the scoring position on second base. And for him to take, to be in that position with, again, Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo behind him, if he can keep up the approach he has right now, I really like him moving up in the lineup going forward. I do too. Well, that's uh, that's all I had to talk about for this segment. Um, thank you again for coming on and joining me and, and chatting a little bit about uh, Cubs batters and uh, talking about our, our drinking escapades uh, <laughs> from earlier this week. I wasn't too hungover, but, uh, you know, delicious tacos and, and beer and... Uh, well, malort. <laughs> a lot of malort. <laughs> oh. I think the next adventure has to be doing an episode of this drunk. <laughs> I think that the I think that the listeners would really enjoy that. Yeah. No. Um. What's the? Uh, uh, there was somebody on Twitter. Uh, Stacy Gatsulius, uh talked about doing a drunk podcast called Stace's Loaded. <laughs> I love talking, that. Talking about baseball while drunk. So yeah, no, I, I don't see anything that could possibly go wrong. No, I can't. I personally can't think of anything in the way that I also can't think of anything that could go wrong at all for this baseball season. And I feel that we have lost every game we are going to lose. Yes, the Cubs are going to go <laughs> one fifty four and eight. That's that's a good prediction. 
That's my official prediction. Uh, and my other official prediction, which I'm sure people will laugh at me for, is that we're going to see another Mets Cubs NLCS. And maybe that's a topic you can find me talking about a little more on Twitter. But I do believe in the Mets this year, and I think we're going to see a rehash on that one. Cool. Well, why don't you tell uh, the listeners who are unfamiliar where they can find you on Twitter and what they can find you writing about at Locked on Cubs and wherever else you want to tease that you write? Sure. Um, well, my my Twitter handle is at Kelly A. Wallace, spelled the normal way and not the way that people make it weird with a bunch of extra vowels. Um, I love to write about... Um, <laughs> I love to write about interesting things in baseball. Anything that feels like a narrative to me, I love stories. Um, specifically right now, I'm very invested in the sort of ongoing conversation about respecting the game versus not respecting the game, what that means, who gets to decide. Um, if anyone who reads the website regularly, I'm sure they saw my piece this week about the uh, Javi Baez, Clint Hurdle dust up, let's call it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I do that. I also, if you write, if you care about theater or the arts at all, uh, I'm the managing editor of a great theater website. It's called stageandcandor.com. And, uh, you may actually be able to find some surprising baseball content there soon, but that is all I will say for now. Oh yeah. You definitely want to keep an eye out for that because Kelly's told me all about that and I'm very excited <laughs> about it. So I'll definitely be teasing that from Locked on Cubs when it happens. So you guys will know. Well, anyway, thank you very much again for joining me. I love talking baseball and just about anything else with you. So I'll be having you on again soon, I'm sure. Oh, thanks. I can't wait to come back. It was a lot of fun. For a final segment, I'm going to go ahead and take you around the NL Central, as I always do. We know that the Cubs beat the Cardinals, uh, but there were a few things that happened to the other teams that are notable. The Pirates finally lost a game, getting shut out by Jake Arrieta and the Philadelphia Phillies by a score of 7 to nothing. Arietta had a throwback game against Pittsburgh, going seven innings, allowing one hit, two walks, and striking out 10 batters. I'm sure the Pirates, just as much as they love the Cubs, they love Arietta even more. So I'm guessing they were just absolutely uh, thrilled to tip their cap to him from across the field. The Reds mercifully were allowed to take the day off after firing their manager, Brian Price, earlier in the morning. And the Brewers were still in process with the Marlins as of this moment, uh, but they were at home against Miami and leading 11-3, to I think heading to the top of the seventh inning. So I'm going to guess that that one's over. Chase Anderson went five and a third for the Brewers, who got a home run from Lorenzo Cain. Uh, Lewis Brinson, the former Brewers prospect, it should be noted, hit his first two home runs of the season against his former club. Assuming the Brewers don't blow that big lead against one of the worst teams in baseball, the current NL standings as of Friday morning look like this. Pirates are still in first despite their loss at 12-7. and seven. The Brewers are in second place at 11-9, 1.5 games back. The Cardinals are in third at 10-8, and eight, also a game and a half back. The Cubs are in fourth at 8-8, eight and eight, two and a half games back. And the Reds are still in last place at 3-15, and 15, but they did gain a half game on first place now only eight and a half games back. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. Thank you to Kelly Wallace for joining me. It was a great conversation. I absolutely love chatting with Kelly anytime I can. And same goes for all the guests that I've had on. And I'm sure you'll be hearing more from the people from Locked on Cubs, the writers that I have. I'll be bringing them on. Uh, anyone who wants to come on and chat at some point this season. So you'll be hearing more of Kelly. You'll be hearing more of the other writers. I'll still have uh, guests like Evan and Luis and Michael and you know anyone else I've had on uh, and probably more as well. 
So thank you again for listening. Uh, Hopefully the Cubs have a good weekend in Colorado. And who knows, maybe I'll get back to you on Monday with a podcast where I'm talking about a three-game sweep of the Colorado Rockies.